John is a very symbol-laden writer. This is the man, after all, who wrote the book of Revelation. And John loves to spiritualize certain motifs, day and night, for instance. Uh, There is more to day and night than than the time of day in the fourth gospel. Uh, After the Last Supper, when Judas Iscariot is about to betray our Lord, we read in chapter 13, verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And doubtless it was dark. It was, you know, nighttime. But John is saying more than that. He's saying Judas was swallowed up in the most awful darkness, outer darkness, as he betrays our Lord Jesus Christ. Or think of John 3. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night. He's in a fog. Nicodemus doesn't see clearly, but he thinks he does. Another motif, light and darkness. Speaking of Jesus, John writes in his prologue, verses 4 and 5, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness of corruption and rebellion and the darkness has not overcome it or chapter 319 this is the verdict light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that they may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And as we saw last week, those texts prepare us for that glorious crescendo of chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus declares in the temple courts, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those same themes, day and night, light and darkness, carry over into our passage this morning in John chapter 9. Our Lord says in chapter 9, verse 5, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And again, just as we saw last week, the coming of the light has a twofold effect. It brings salvation to those who are blind And it brings the shadow of judgment to those who will not come into the light. If you look at your bulletins, you can see the big picture. This chapter, chapter 9, portrays what happens when Jesus, the light of the world, shines. Some are made to see, like the man born blind. While others who think they see, turn away. Blinded, as it were, by the light. And chapter 9 famously begins with Jesus healing a man born blind. A physical miracle occurs. However, our Lord heals this man on the Sabbath, which, according to the man-made laws of the religious leaders of the time, is a naughty thing to do. And so a conflict is unleashed. And as the conflict progresses, it becomes very plain. The blind beggar is seeing reality. He's seeing the truth of Jesus more and more clearly. While the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're perceiving that reality less and less and less. 
The beggar moves from seeing Jesus as a man in verse 11 to seeing him as a prophet in verse 17 to worshiping him in verse 38. But the Pharisees, they're moving in the opposite direction. Verse 16, this man, Jesus, is not from God. Verse 22, the Jewish leaders had declared that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah was to be put out of the synagogue. Verse 24, we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And what becomes evident as we come to the last three verses in this chapter is that what began as a miracle of physical healing, of physical blindness, has become, as so often in this gospel, a picture of the healing of spiritual blindness. And not healing only, but judgment too. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, and and this may be contrary to our sort of our pop conception of Jesus, meek and mild, wearing Birkenstocks and eating granola. It's like, for judgment, I have come into this world. So that the blind will see, and those who see, that is, who think they see, will become blind. And then some Pharisees overhearing Jesus' comment and priding themselves on their spiritual discernment are shocked into asking if Jesus includes them among the blind. Verse 41, Jesus replies, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. We're going to look at those verses. There's some, there's some difficulty with how to understand that, but friend... I want to ask, what about you? Is Jesus describing you in that verse? God God forbid. Is he describing you? Do you you claim to see spiritual truth? I would ask, if you do make that claim, what's your criteria? On whose say-so are your spiritual beliefs valid? On whose authority? Or maybe you believe there is no epistemic certainty in these matters, but your opinion on spiritual truth is just as valid as any other joker who claims spiritual insight. It's all subjective. It's all unknowable anyway, you would argue. And so you're happy to speak of uh, your truth, my truth. You know, truth for different interpretive communities. It's very common we hear, uh, live in your truth and, and be your most authentic self. Jesus never speaks that way. To speak frankly, that's the way to hell. He goes on to say in chapter 14, the exact opposite. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, Your guilt remains. Friend, have you in fact come to Jesus in faith? Have you come to the light of the world? Have have you asked him for spiritual sight? Has he granted you that sight? I, I pray you have. I pray that you would today. If not, be warned. Your supposed sight, all your authenticity as you live out in your truth, is just more rebellious blindness. And your guilt before God remains. Jesus says that. We all must heed Jesus' warning. Those who are confident of their ability to see 
do not ask for spiritual sight. And so those people remain blind with the culpable blindness of smug self-satisfaction. There are none so blind as those who do not know they are blind. And so we pray, as God's word is open today, as his word is preached, we pray, Lord, by a sovereign work of your Holy Spirit, grant sight to those in deepest spiritual darkness, those who sit presently under your judgment, whose guilt before you remains. Amen. Verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And I think granted the symbolism of this chapter, it's likely that this detail, that he was blind from birth, in addition to heightening the effect of the miracle. I mean, nobody's ever heard of the opening of of the eyes of a man born blind, uh, not even in the Old Testament. So in addition to heightening the effect of Jesus' amazing miracle, it also signals that human beings are spiritually blind from birth. Jesus' miracle, this sign, is operating on two levels, as it often does in in this gospel. So as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, this is a strange question, but Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples assume, like most Jews of their day, uh, that sin and suffering are intimately connected. And in one sense, of course, that's, that is correct. Uh, suffering is an entailment of Adam's fall in Genesis chapter 3. But sometimes we, get, we can get so close to something that we don't actually see it properly. Uh, so let me just challenge you. Stand with your eyes one inch away from a large tree, just like this, and just stare straight ahead for five minutes. All right, try to imagine what it would be like if you had never seen a tree before. Is, is doing that going to be very helpful for your first exposure t- to trees? Not, not at all. You have no clue. Um, you need to stand back a bit. You need to take in the whole thing, take in the big picture. You need some distance. The same thing applies to the study of Holy Scripture. Uh, we can become so engrossed in this book or, or that particular verse that the Bible's plot line, the storyline of the Bible, actually drops from view. Lord willing, we'll be starting up our Christianity 101 series again this fall. And let me encourage you, if you're a, if you're a new Christian, or if you're not a Christian, but you're somebody who's interested in the teachings of Christianity, what the Bible teaches, um, but you don't know the Bible all that well, then you should really come out. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a good time. A group of us come over to our house, and uh, we eat a meal together, and then we watch a series of, of about 45-minute videos, and uh, it goes actually through the whole storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, the Bible begins with God creating the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's how the Bible begins. Repeatedly, God's verdict is that all of his handiwork, everything he's creating is good. It's good. It's very good. There is no sin. There is no suffering in Genesis 1 and 2. But the first human rebellion in chapter 3 marks the onset of suffering and toil and pain and death. That's where it starts. And then just two chapters later, we read the endlessly repeated and pitiful refrain, and then he died. 
and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, over and over and over again. Of course, at the end of the Bible, we see the ultimate reparation of the damage. Uh, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That's still in the future, of course, uh, but it's in consequence of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and his resurrection for sin. Let me just read you some texts. Revelation 21, 3 to 4. Again, this is still to our future. Revelation 21, 3 to 4. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. But if this marks the end of suffering, it also marks the end of sin. Revelation 21, 27. Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So between the beginning and the end of the Bible, there is evil. And there is suffering. And from the perspective of the Bible's large-scale storyline, those two things are profoundly connected. Evil is the primal cause of suffering. Rebellion is the root of pain. Sin is the source of death. However, once a person, you need to be careful of this, once a person moves from generalizing statements about the origin of the human race's maladies to super tight connections between the sins and sufferings of an individual person. They go beyond the biblical evidence. Or, or actually, let me, let me rephrase that. We, we, need, we need to proceed very carefully here because there's a lot of bad teaching on this in wider evangelicalism. But the Bible does state that there can be, there can be a direct line of relationship between sin and illness in a specific individual. It is possible. Uh, remember what Jesus says to the invalid in John 5:14 after he heals him? See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Or think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1 to 11. They died as a result of their sin, didn't they? They lied to the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Corinthians 11.30. In regard to the Lord's Supper, Paul, the apostle, writes, Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have died. And it doesn't actually have to be some sort of supernatural judicial sentence either, like in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, but rather the natural outworking of cause and effect under God's providence. There are certainly illnesses and deaths that are the consequence of sinful lifestyle choices and sinful acts of behavior. How many people are ill in this world as the direct result of suppressed hatred, anger, jealousy, bitterness, Fear, guilt. How many illnesses are related to stress and anxiety? How many people are ill because of alcohol and drug abuse or sexual immorality? How many illnesses are related to the unabashed workaholic pursuit of wealth? 
How many illnesses and deaths are the result of gluttony? This isn't always the case, of course. Uh, There isn't a necessary link between illness and sin. You just have to look at someone like Job, right? Job was a righteous man, and yet he suffered terribly. A few years ago, a close friend of mine from high school was killed in a car accident. It was foggy. He was stopped along the 401 in a construction zone, and the car behind him crashed into his rear end and pushed him under the back of a transport truck, decapitating him. At the wake, one of our mutual friends, a man who knew I was a pastor, I've known this man since I was nine years old, and actually he was worried that I was, I was having a mental breakdown when the Lord saved me at 21 because my life shift from sin to righteousness was so dramatic. Um, he asked me in front of all of our friends how God could allow this tragedy to occur. And he wasn't looking for theological insight. He was furious with God. What do you say in a moment like that? In John 9... The disciples are presupposing the tightest possible connection between sin and suffering. This specific individual is suffering from blindness. Therefore, some specific individual sin must have been the antecedent cause. That's how they're thinking. Because he was born blind, it must be that either he sinned in the womb, and that that was regarded certainly as possible uh, by some Jews, Or his parents sinned in some way that implicated him. Jesus responds in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And what those works are, we're going to see that in a moment. But they're tied to the self-disclosure of Jesus. And to the manifestation of the glory of God. But, just bear in mind... These works transpire only after this man has suffered two or three decades of blindness with all the distress that such an infliction incurred both for the beggar himself and for his family. Jesus goes on to say there is no special, that, that there is special urgency in performing the works of God. Look at verse 4. As long as it is day, see, see this theme again, as long as it is day, as long as Jesus is still with them, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, referring to the darkness of the period when Jesus is first taken from his disciples. Verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Again, no other religious teachers talk like that. That's a, that's, Jesus speaks like this uniquely. I am the light of the world as long as I'm in the world. Which doesn't mean Jesus stops being the light of the world once he ascends to heaven. It means that the light shines brightly while he lives out his human life up to the moment of his glorification. Throughout that period, Jesus is the light that exposes the world, judges the world, saves the world. And of course, once Jesus has been glorified, then the Holy Spirit continues many of the functions that Jesus performed in the days of his flesh. So in that mediated sense then, through the Spirit, the light continues to shine. And we're going to look at that more in chapters 14 through 16. It's a major part of this gospel. So, Jesus has just declared, I am the light of the world. Now he proceeds to illustrate that point by giving light to a man born blind. He gives him his sight. Look at verse 6. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. 
And, and I'm sorry, but just what, what this spittle uh, mud pack signifies, it's very difficult to determine. Uh, this isn't the only healing miracle where Jesus uses his spit. And quite sure what that signifies. There's, there's myriads of options, and I don't know which one is best. But verse 7, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This, means, this word means sent, which is actually a play on words, since Jesus is the one whom God sent. If there's one theme that's dominated John's gospel, it's that Jesus is the sent one. So Jesus is sent by God the Father to cleanse. He's sent by God the Father to bring light. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So you can see John describes the actual miracle in the simplest possible fashion. He does the same thing with the resurrection of Lazarus. It's very concise. Nothing could be more concise here, less flamboyant. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. And at this point, Jesus drops out of the narrative until verse 35, and the healed man takes center stage. Though obviously, uh, the healed man is merely the occasion for the discussion. The heart of the ensuing debate is Jesus himself. Jesus has just healed a man born blind. And the first result of this sign that John records is the effect of the miracle on the man's neighbors. Look at verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And actually, this is the first mention of the man being a beggar. But it's actually, it's almost implied in the earlier statement that he was blind. These were very hard days. Uh, What else could a blind man do? In the ancient world, except beg. That was your only option. The one sort of presupposes the other. If you're blind, you're going to be a beggar. Isn't it the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. And this brings the eager question. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus... And as the chapter progresses, we see his awareness of the significance of Jesus, how that grows. But the man they call Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. At this point, the religious authorities get involved. They investigate the healing. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. And there's no need, I don't think, to, to ascribe malice to these people for, you know, they're not trying to rat Jesus out and bringing this guy to the Pharisees. Um, <clears throat> the, the healed man's neighbors, naturally, they're turning to their local religious leaders and they're asking them, how, how should we make sense of this healing? They couldn't have known how this was going to pan out. I mean, this goes downhill hill real fast. The healed man and his parents are going to be given uh, the third degree. And then they're going to excommunicate this man from the synagogue. So they weren't anticipating that. Verse 4. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. That that never bodes well. Somebody always takes umbrage with Jesus doing his father's will on a Saturday. And from the point of view of some Pharisees, Jesus had transgressed the oral law regarding the Sabbath on two and perhaps three points. Healing itself on the Sabbath was forbidden, except for cases where human life was in danger. 
And that's not the case here because this man has been born blind. From, he was born blind, so there's no danger to his life. Moreover, amongst the prohibited categories of work, kneading, K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, kneading and making mud from spittle, and dirt may have been struck. There's actually being, he was actually kneading something there. That could have been something. And finally, there was a division of opinion amongst the authorities as to whether or not anointing the eyes was legal on Sabbath. I mean, plucking gray hairs was illegal, so it kind of stands to reason that that's probably illegal too. And so the combination of all these factors transformed this sense of just open, probing amazement that Pharisees should have experienced under Jesus' uh, just incredible sign into suspicion and doubt and theological resentment. Verse 15. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. So the man relates what happened again. He puts the essence of the matter in one terse sentence. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. Well, okay, Jesus obviously is so much more than a prophet, but that confession may reflect a man in his spiritual infancy. It's a step in the right direction, certainly. The niceties of Sabbath regulations don't concern this fellow one bit. He couldn't care less. He knows for a fact that a work of God has been done in his life. And therefore, the human agent must be an extraordinary individual, a prophet, uh, someone sent with God's word. The, the man's eyes, we can see, the man's eyes are opening wider and wider. Right? He's beginning to see still more clearly, while the eyes of his judges are becoming clouded over. They're being blinded with theological mist. Verse 18, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until... They sent for the man's parents. Neighbors might be mistaken about this guy's identity, but surely his parents wouldn't be fooled. Obviously, the authorities are, were finding it difficult to believe this fellow had, in fact, been born blind. Because if that were the case, if he actually had been born blind, and if Jesus really had healed him, that was saying something about Jesus. It was saying something about Jesus' power that they did not want to hear. So they're sort of putting their heads in the sand a bit. Then, then, like today, there were plenty of faith healers in the land. That's not a, that's not a, a new occurrence. Uh, but most of their work wasn't very impressive, just like today as well. But to give sight to a congenitally, blind, a congenitally born man born blind, well, that's just that's absolutely unheard of in the realm of faith healing. Unheard of. And that the authorities are pressing the healed man's parents on these points suggests that they're prepared to doubt the testimony of the man himself. Verse 19, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? And for reasons that John's going to explain in verses 22 and 23, the parents are quite uncomfortable with this line of questioning. Yes, they are prepared to affirm he's our son. And yes, he was indeed born blind. Those are, those are safe answers. That's not going to get them in any kind of trouble. Verse 20, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. As for the last question, they passed the buck. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. 
not their best moment as parents. Uh, Evidently, this couple is of a very different temper from that of their sturdily-minded son. We're going to see his increased courage and his cynical wit in just a second here. But their reply is characterized by timidity and and a fear of man. There's a readiness to tamely submit to the authority of the Pharisees. What's the problem? Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. How's that for being faithful shepherds of God's people? If you confess that Jesus is the Messiah, you will be excommunicated from the synagogue. So we need to put this into the whole context of John's gospel. What do you think Jesus' father, whom these Pharisees worship as God, what do you think he thinks about that? Because Jesus has already warned the Pharisees in chapter 5, verse 23, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Which means the jealous God of the Old Testament He insists that all the glory, adoration, and worship, which is exclusively his because he is God, is now to be given to the Son, Jesus. The Son is no less God than he. The Son is to be worshipped as God the Father is to be worshipped. And if we don't, then we're withholding that worship from God himself. Which means, friends, if you're here today and not a Christian... If you have yet to bow the knee to Jesus Christ in faith and allegiance, you need to pray that the Holy Spirit would awaken you to this truth. You you are responsible to believe, and you will be held accountable if you don't. As things presently stand, you are withholding from Jesus the Messiah what is his due, your complete adoration, your complete worship, your complete obedience. And in so doing, you're withholding those things from God the Father. That's dangerous. That's damning. Yes, I'll I'll use that word in 2022. Withholding the adoration, worship, and obedience that is Jesus due will damn your soul. And the fear of the parents highlights one of the fundamental reasons in John's gospel why many don't believe. They fear people more than God. Verse 23. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They discerned the danger, and they have no intention of being caught up with it with their son. But even though the parents preserved their own relations with the religious authorities, yet their witness established that a notable miracle has occurred. This man is their son, and he was born blind. That's been established now. So, The healed man is brought on the carpet once again. Time for round two. The authorities suspect that something has been kept hidden from them. And so they adjure the man to tell them the truth. Verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. See, the Pharisees, they face a conundrum here. It's very serious. Apparently, they've reached enough consensus to agree that this man that's a a contemptuous reference to jesus this man is a sinner they're in agreement on that but a notable miracle has taken place that much is undeniable the man's parents testified to the fact that he was born blind and there he stands with 20 20 vision 
But if God is behind the miracle, then why should the human agent be judged sinful? Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. And the truth they want confessed, of course, is that Jesus is a sinner. He's a transgressor of the law, by which they mean the oral law, which many conservative Jews understood to have the same divine binding force as the written Mosaic Code. They're thinking there must be some fragment of information that this man is hiding from them, something that would enable them to be at ease with their, just their given, what they're presupposing, that Jesus is a sinner. You know, they've already said, if you call him the Messiah, you're getting kicked out of the synagogue. This man is evil in their, in their understanding. See, if they can do that, then if he actually is a sinner, that's established, then they could, the whole thing can be chalked up maybe to the power of Beelzebub or something. Right, which is precisely what the religious authorities do on another occasion. Verse 25, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. He's basically saying, I have no competence to judge that. I'll leave that to you. You're the theological experts. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Uh, how, How many countless Christians throughout the ages have applied those exact same words to to our own transformation, brothers and sisters. Our own experience of the move from darkness to light. I was blind, but now, by God's grace, I see. Our closing hymn today actually celebrates that same truth. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Friends, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, not to help those who are willing to help themselves, but to do for his people what they were incapable of doing for themselves. Isaiah 42, 7, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Spiritual blindness, spiritual prisons, spiritual dungeons of sin, death, hell, tyranny to Satan. Verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Oh, the cynical wit. That does not go over well with these guys. The suggestion incenses the Pharisees, and they respond by hurling insults. You are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but it's for this fellow. We don't even know where he comes from. The man answered with great common sense. Now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. What the man finds remarkable isn't his own belief, but the unbelief of the officials. Jesus has performed an astonishing miracle of healing, and they can't decide where he's from. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind, not even in the Old Testament. The conclusion, therefore, is obvious. Verse 33 If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this, we replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. 
You were born blind, buddy. You were steeped in sin from your mother's womb. You're stewing in sin, just marinating in sin. Your blindness attests to that fact. But you see what just, they've just inadvertently confessed. The man was blind now, after all. Jesus must have opened his eyes. But the irony of their rage escapes them, so great is their own blindness. How dare you lecture us, they say, and they threw him out. That is, they excommunicated him from the local synagogue. And that is a super important detail. This man is excommunicated by the religious leaders of Israel for his testimony about Jesus. And this is what precipitates the Jesus' good shepherd discourse in John chapter 10. The accounts are linked. If we had another hour, which we don't, I just start preaching chapter 10 at the end of chapter 9. They're actually linked together. Probably the chapter 10 division isn't all that helpful for us. It should be one account. And now we come to the final and most important section of the whole passage. The sight of the blind and the blindness of the sight at verse 35 to 41. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And this, this title, Son of Man, is used 13 times in John's Gospel. It's a self-designated title of Jesus. He, he uses it in reference to himself. Nobody calls him that. He calls himself that 13 times. And the reason why Jesus employs this title in reference to himself is for it, its inherent ambiguity. Both in Hebrew and Greek, the expression Son of Man was used for human being. And it certainly has that use in John's gospel. It just means human being. However, the title also refers to the passage in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where one, like the Son of Man, a Son of Man is granted universal authority and, and dominion by the Ancient of Days. Let me just read this text. This is, a, this is a, a very, very important Old Testament text. Jesus is applying it to himself. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So because of this ambiguity, Daniel 7, and as well as just human being, it was perfect for Jesus when, he, when he's referring to himself because messianic titles really, they had that, that kind of like that political component to it that he wanted to avoid like the plague. Jesus is the Messiah who dies in shame on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, which means Jesus sought him out, the man had been persecuted for Jesus' sake. Jesus does not remain indifferent. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The man's response is instantaneous. The NIV reports that he worshipped him. The Greek verb means to prostrate oneself before, to do obeisance to. 
and frequently occurs in contexts where there is no notion of worship or adoration. The verb actually takes on the force of worship, to worship, only when the person that, one, that, that you're actually worshiping is God himself. Otherwise, it's just you're doing obeisance to, you're, you're reverencing the person. Uh, it's not clear to me at this point that this man understands who Jesus is on the same level as Thomas does after his resurrection appearance where he says, my Lord and my God. I don't think he's saying, you are God, Jesus. He is a redeemer from God. He is the revealer of God, which is a great step forward from his earlier references to Jesus as the man they call Jesus, verse 11. He is a prophet, verse 17. This man from God, verse 33. But John the evangelist, who knows that the Christological confessions in his gospel will climax with Thomas's confession in 2028, my Lord and my God, he doubtless understands that the healed man is worshiping better than he knows. He's worshiping better than he knows. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see. That is, those people who are in spiritual darkness, who are lost, and who know it, who admit it, Jesus came to open their eyes, to give them the light of revelation that will enable them to see. For judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see, that is, who, those who think they see, will become blind. So just as we saw last week, the coming of the light has a twofold effect. It brings salvation to those who are blind. It brings the shadow of judgment to those who will not come to the light. They flee from the light because their deeds are evil. Right? Look at your big picture one more time. This chapter portrays what happens when Jesus, the light of the world, shines. Some are made to see, like the man born blind, while others who think they see turn away, blinded, as it were, by the light. Friend, I want to ask, have you come here today tenaciously holding to your religious opinions? Opinions not grounded in the word of God, and the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son? Have you come here today to sit under the preached word of God, filled with pride, filled with arrogant self-sufficiency, believing that you already see you're being authentic to your true self, whatever? Are you sitting there right now actually judging Jesus' words? Are you relativizing, domesticating, disbelieving the teaching of Jesus Christ? The world's only savior from sin, the son of man, he warns you today, friend. Remain on your present course, and what awaits you is divine judgment. Or do you know, you know that you're living in spiritual darkness? Do you know that you're lost? Do you acknowledge your sinful, lost condition? And so you cry out to God for illumination. Then, if that's you, then be encouraged. Jesus came into the world to open the eyes of the spiritually blind, to give his people the light of revelation that will enable them to see the truth. Verse 40, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked him, what, are we blind too? 
And with great irony, Jesus replies, if you were blind, that is, if you acknowledged, if you acknowledged that you were spiritually blind, if you acknowledged your lost condition and were crying out for God to, grow, to God for illumination, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. In particular, the sin of unbelief that rejects my revelation. But now that you claim you can see, because you're satisfied with the light of the law of Moses as interpreted by your man-made traditions, so you feel you can reject the true light when it shines upon you in me as you excommunicate my sheep from the synagogue because they declare that I'm the Messiah, your guilt remains. Friends, there's a fork in the road at the end of this message. We all walk down one path or we walk down the other path. I, I deeply fear for the souls of several people here today who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ preached faithfully over and over and over again all their lives sometimes from faithful parents and then year after year each Sunday as this church gathers under the preaching of the word. As John Piper notes, those who have perfectly good eyes in their heads who can think and reason, who can see the evidences and hear the sermons and read the Bible and get acquainted with Jesus, but who will not admit that they are blind and need to be born again with spiritual life and light, they become blind. That is, their blindness is revealed, and the more light they resist, the harder and deeper their blindness becomes. Don't let that be you. And then Jesus declares, chapter 10, verse 1. We're going to look at this next week, but look at chapter 10, verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. See, that's the setup. That's the narrative flow from chapter 9 to chapter 10. The chapters are linked. There really shouldn't be a chapter division. Uh, But as we see, the backdrop to chapter 10 in Jesus' Good Shepherd discourse is quite dark. It's the glaring irresponsibility, the spiritual blindness of the Jewish religious leaders. The healed man has been roughly treated by these shepherds of Israel. They've thrown him out of the synagogue. He's been excommunicated. And so Jesus sets up the contrast. Thieves and robbers destroy the sheep. But Jesus is the good shepherd. He's not a thief. Or a robber. Jesus is the shepherd who knows his sheep by name. Jesus is the shepherd who nurtures his sheep. Jesus is the shepherd who dies deliberately as a sacrifice for his sheep. Jesus is the shepherd who transforms his sheep. He gives sight to the blind. Amen.